Hello and welcome back to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, how concerned should we be about the mega takeover happening at Newcastle United? Why aren't players getting vaccinated in the Premier League? We'll check in on the opening week of the UEFA Women's Champions League and a special quiz regarding red cards. Stay tuned for that. This is The Game. Hello, welcome back once again to The Game Podcast. I'm Hugh Wozencroft, alongside three fantastic talents from The Times, Tom Clark, Tom Roddy and Gregor Robertson. And Tom Clark, welcome back from your two weeks away. I hope you spent it well. You did do something that we're all thankful for, though, and you finally got that Barnet shot. Oh, <laughs> it's so good to see you looking so clean shaven and, and neat now. Thank you, mate. And as Gregor Robertson said, taking years off me, which is the main thing. Obviously, <laughs> when you're a 32 year old single man, you need to uh, you need to look as young as possible. I think so. That's mm-hmm. that's the main thing. But yeah, no, a sig- significant moment, almost as significant as some of the ve- events that have gone on in football in the last 24 hours. But I'm sure we'll come to those. Oh, absolutely. We'll get straight into them. In fact, so you three stay there. Let's speak to Martin Ziegler of the Times, who's been doing some pretty fantastic reporting on the big, big story of the week. It involves Newcastle United and a Saudi Arabia-backed takeover. This is one that was rejected in 2020. It has now come back to the fore. Yeah, so I think this is not just sort of imminent. I actually think that the deal has been done. The Premier League have agreed to let Newcastle be bought by Saudi Arabia, the public investment fund, and... It's, uh, yeah, for, for, for Newcastle fans who've been desperate to see the end of the Mike Ashley era, it's a time for celebration. Um, for others who see this as a, a sport-washing exercise by a Saudi regime, which has got a very questionable human rights record, it will, will not be a cause for celebration. Yeah, I mean, we'll come to that very, very shortly. I think we need to. But let's talk about the facts of, of I guess, the settlement how the argument, this, the dispute has been resolved. Be in sports and the Saudi Arabian, I guess, public investment fund here coming to some sort of settlement, have they? Has it been a financial settlement? It's not been a financial settlement. I mean, I, I mean, quite significantly, the, the issue is the Saudis have lifted their ban on be in sport because they've got approval from the Premier League. Because the Premier League, I th- from what I understand, has pointed out you cannot have a situation where Saudi Arabia owns, or their public investment fund at least, owns Newcastle United, yet people in Saudi Arabia cannot watch matches legally involving that club. So I think they are very much intertwined that once the Saudis had the the, the sort of... uh, the message from the Premier League that the takeover could go through, then they lifted the ban. And as a result of that, be in sport, the Qatari broadcaster who holds the Premier League rights for the Middle East, they dropped their opposition to this takeover going through. In fact, they they actually went, went, went out to the Premier League and said that they have no more concerns. So that removed all the obstacles. And yeah, it, it's happening. What about the involvement of the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia? Because that was also a dispute that the royal family, I guess, of Saudi Arabia were going to be directly involved in controlling Newcastle United had this takeover happened. I take it that's not the case now. So, yes, Crown, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, he is the person who runs the public investment fund, the PIF um, of Saudi Arabia. So uh, not surprisingly, people um, look at this and think he is the man who's going to be sort of the power behind the the the, uh, the club as well as behind the throne of, of Saudi Arabia. What the Premier League have had are written assurances saying that the Saudi Arabian state will not interfere with the running of the club. The board, from what I understand, is going to have one Saudi PIF representative. That will be the governor of the PIF, Yasir al-Rumayan. The other directors will be Amanda Staveley, who's a minor- who will be a minority shareholder, and the Rubin brothers, also minority shareholders. So I think the Premier League have accepted the fact that it's not going to be dominated by the PIF, at least initially. Um, in terms of the, the, the director structure. 
and from that they i guess they they feel that that's enough for them to take the position that the saudi state will not be actually involved in the direct running of the club do you trust that will be the case do you have faith in that or do you think this was something that will change very quickly it's quite difficult to know. Uh, I mean, if you look at other state-owned clubs, um, Manchester City, Paris Saint-Germain, I mean, Manchester City is a, is a classic case where Sheikh Mansour is not, uh, so you wouldn't say, you could argue that uh, the case that Manchester City is not directly owned by the, the Abu Dhabi state, uh, and he's owned by Sheikh Mansour. On the other hand, um, lots of people say that actually Sheikh Mansour is basically a, a sort of figurehead for the for the government. So, I mean, there are lots of ways of getting around these things, aren't there? I mean, I'm just surprised that the Saudi Arabia wasn't a, didn't take that model themselves to start off with, because it would have been much much easier in the first place. Um, they could still have put in as much money as they wanted from the, the public investment fund, and or, or but actually they, they they could have had another vehicle to do that. They they've chosen not to do that. It's still going to be the PIF involved. So the, the one thing you can say is they they are going to be transparent around this. The arbitration that was going on, I think it involved the Premier League as well. Have the Premier League, or will they in the future, do you believe, receive any sort of compensation for the piracy that went on in Saudi Arabia, or will be in sports? more likely receive some kind of compensation in the future. Yeah, so the arbitration was brought by Mike Ashley, the Newcastle United owner against the Premier League. That will almost certainly be dropped now. Then There's no point in him continuing it. There's nothing in it for him. So I guess he, he, that will be just, that will not happen. In terms of compensation for being sport, I think it, there will certainly be financial compensation um, they'd brought a, themselves a, a $1 billion arbitration against the Saudis uh, for the piracy of, of their, not just Premier League matches, but all sorts of sports rights that they, uh, that was pirated um, by and shown in Saudi Arabia. So I, I think there will be a financial settlement there. And I mean, from what I understand, there's already been approaches from Saudi, Saudi Arabia to be in sports saying that they are prepared to look at that. Just finally, Martin, we will talk about it next, but a lot of people will raise, of course, big, big questions over Saudi Arabia's involvement in Premier League football, and in particular, of course, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, mainly because, of course, he was named as one of maybe the, the sole reasons why the journalist Jamal Khashoggi was murdered at Saudi Arabia's Turkish embassy in October 2018. In fact, the US intelligence department, you guys report, cite that as a fact. So do you, do you think there will be more questions for the Premier League to answer? I'm sure that human rights groups will absolutely kick up a stink about this. And, you know, probably rightly so, because Mohammed bin Salman was identified by the, uh, the, the US head of intelligence services as almost certainly having approved the operation to either abduct or kill Jamal Khashoggi. I'm sure those Newcastle fans who are desperate for a Saudi takeover will argue the fact that, well, the, you know, the US isn't, isn't banning him, Britain isn't banning him, why should the Premier League ban him? Which is a fair point, I guess, but it can leave a nasty taste in the mouth for, for those who think, actually, you know, do we want somebody who is that got, perhaps got this blood on their hands involved in, in, in a football club? It's... um. Yeah, it, I can I can see why it's distasteful to some people, but I can also see the other argument why you know why why should we continue to trade with this country and you know, meet this political leader, this crown prince um, on on one level, but Newcastle United shouldn't be allowed to take to to be owned by him or not by him, but by organisations represented by him. Martin Ziegler, thank you for joining us on this episode of The Game. Thank you for your reporting alongside Matt Lawton and Martin Hardy as well. And you can read more of that. And I'm sure by the time you're listening to this, there might there might be a takeover already completed, but you can read it in The Times right now. I'm sure that story will be updated as we speak. Martin, thank you very much. Cheers, you. So that is where we stand in terms of how things have changed around this Saudi Arabian takeover. But um, there are so many question marks, so many questions to be answered, really, when it comes to the new era at Newcastle United. Some are just absolutely delighted with the fact that they might get a shiny new right back. And others, I think rightly so, 
very concerned about sports washing. Another, it seems, episode of sports washing uh, in the United Kingdom and in the Premier League, to be fair. Tom Clark, I'm going to start with you on this one. Sports washing is, for those that don't know, and I'm sure you all do, you know, it's when a, a state most likely, uses sport as a way, maybe hosting a competition, buying a club, whatever it might be, to sort of mask who they really are and and show themselves on the world stage as being something a lot more palatable. To see the United Kingdom used as a vehicle for that, for me personally, is a sad thing. What do you think about it? Yeah, certainly. Our national game of football is a special thing um, around the world. That's why we have so much global interest and that's why we have so many global owners i mean this is this is not just uh, a unique case of manchester city and newcastle being owned you know foreign ownership is uh, prominent across across the country and in all leagues right the way down into league 2 even in wrexham you've got foreign ownership coming into it in a very different way of course so that's something that we've had to contend with for a long time when it comes to sport washing obviously that is a far more uh, delicate and for many people a very uncomfortable topic to discuss and it's this one is probably the situation that's going to highlight it the most i think because you've got a club like newcastle with such a passionate support you've got a current owner so detested in mike ashley and it does feel a little bit like the saudi uh, backed consortium are tapping into that a little bit, perhaps I'm being a cynic again, straight straight back from holiday. The holiday buzz has <laughs> worn off already. Maybe I'm straight back into being a cynic, but it does feel like they're tapping into that. You know, they're taking advantage of a situation where Newcastle fans, as I'm sure we'll discuss, there were polls recently, weren't there? 98% of people polled in a survey in the area talking about being happy about this. Lots of fans just wanting to focus on the fact that they, as you say, they might be able to sign a new a new team, never mind a new bright back. So it certainly makes me a little bit uncomfortable in that respect because you do sense that Ashley out tap into this huge, huge fan base and this massive footballing city. It does feel a little bit manipulative. Yeah. Sorry to be a pedant, but I think, I think it's, it was 90, 94% of the supporters trust were pulled recently and were in favour. So look, it's still overwhelming majority <laughs> we're talking about here. Uh, and, you know, I think, I think the first thing we have to acknowledge is the the degree to which Mike Ashley's 14 years as owner of that club has has kind of really torn and stretched and frayed bonds between so many people who love that club and and Newcastle United because ambition has just completely evaporated any hope to relegations almost always fighting relegation or or kind of mulling you know just bobbing away in the bottom half of the Premier League table. So I, I have sympathy for Newcastle United fans, but it also just says a lot about modern football that even with that context, they're willing to completely, so many fans, it seems, are willing to completely overlook what is essentially a, re, uh, a state and a, a regime with people obviously a questionable human rights record, an abhorrent human, human rights record is a better way of phrasing it, I think. Basically, if you're critic of the, of the regime, you, you've got a good chance of being killed or jailed. And this is who is owning, own, now owning Newcastle United. So that's the first thing. And the other thing is that it kind of illuminates the the way that football is governed and how it's completely unfit for purpose. The reason that this is now getting the green light is because the piracy issue with being sports has been resolved. It's nothing to do with, there's no, there's no way, there's no means of the Premier League looking at <laughs> who these people are and they don't, you know, it's like ticking boxes if they've not got a criminal record or they've got, you know, and there's enough detachment, we're going to come on to talk about this, between the PIF and the state. So you can't look at an individual per se. But basically, there's no way of them saying, on looking at even more moral grounds, at why someone should or shouldn't be able to buy a football club. So it, it, feels, it feels very much like the Nadir in that sense. There's so, been so many examples of people who you you're instinctively would say they, sh- they should not be allowed to own a football club it's not like a, any other business and there's no way of stopping it happen this feels like an idea but it, it may not be because it's still the same <laughs> it's still open there could be more people co- you know it could be more examples of this down the line there's more and more money p- pouring into football yeah it's a very uncomfortable day for a lot of a lot of it should be for a lot of fans of english football i think i think this um this not only sort of highlights 
the the sports washing element but it is going to be the one that gets the most coverage because this is the this is just the latest step really you know we had there's the Anthony Joshua fight in Saudi Arabia a few years ago the um the mooted Joshua Tyson Fury fight was going to end up going over there there's in December I think it's the first Formula One race is going to be in Saudi Arabia as well this is just the latest step. And as Martin said earlier about human rights groups are going to inevitably stand up and make a lot of noise about this, understandably. And Newcastle supporters will will claim a, a sort of hypocrisy from a government that trades with Saudi Arabia. And I, and I, I totally get that, I really do. But this is, this is quite clearly geopolitical chess, really. It's just going to run on and on. And and I just hate the idea of, of sort of getting used to it. What I found interesting was, you know, you spoke a little bit about the 94%. I think it was only five and a half thousand ish members of the Newcastle United Supporters Trust who who voted and, and, and saying that they were in favour of this takeover. And you, you feel like that might be more about wanting rid of Mike Ashley than necessarily wanting these new owners specifically. But um but you have to say that there's a there is a an almost sentiment of you know murdering people innocent people and and ordering for them to be chopped up you know is 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 okay because other clubs have you know dubious owners as well that's the thing that i find most sad you know you can want new owners at your club but why would you want a murderous regime to take over your football club you know that 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 for me is very strange and perverse you know but maybe an indication of where modern football has gone in terms of the reaction, it's interesting because we were talking about it before we came on air. Journalists, some not necessarily very strong on it, the ones that regularly covered Newcastle United. There's a part of me that thinks maybe slightly fearful of what might come from the PIF if they were too critical, to be perfectly honest, let alone the Newcastle United fans, of course. The thing that I find strange is the, the change from the Premier League, their stance. Yes, the piracy issue has been resolved, but they, they've apparently had assurances that the Crown Prince Mohammed Bill Samman, who, who was running the Sovereign Wealth Fund, won't have this day-to-day running over Newcastle United. I don't know how they can assure us of those promises that have been made and that he won't, within the next six months, one year, two years, whatever it might be, take full control of the day-to-day running of Newcastle United. Tom Clark, I'll ask you about this. C- can we be sure that this won't happen? No, I don't think we can. I mean... In my position as an editor, listening to Martin Ziegler, who's one of the best sports news reporters around, and generally when I have a question, he has the answer to it, and listen to him talk to you and talk in kind of vagaries about what these assurances would be tells you quite a lot that it's a little bit uncomfortable that we've had assurances, as you say, it's it's not exactly definitive. And... It, it does make, I'm coming back to being cynical again, it does make you a little bit cynical, as you say, that within a year or within six months, or maybe even from the get-go, there's going to be heavy involvement uh, in the running of a, of a massive football club, which has a big influence in this country. I think it's a sad day for English football, but maybe people think it's good for English football. Gregor, what do you think? I think that, I, I come back to this, the, I just feel that football has completely failed to keep pace with the modern landscape, <laughs> you know, you could you could hark back to Roman Abramovich's investment in Chelsea, and he's turned out to be, you know, Chelsea fans quite broadly believe he's been a, a good a good owner of the football club. They've seen success, you know. There's been enough. Then then Man- what happened in Manchester City? There's been enough kind of steps along this road to this point in time, enough kind of warnings and people buying football clubs for for very dubious reasons. And there's still been no steps taken to to protect what are kind of huge institutions, kind of social and cultural institutions in, in places around the country. So that's the thing that really leaps out to me. It's you know, you can talk about whether there's any separation between the PI the the PIF and the state, and you know, the, the clues in the name, the Saudi Public Investment Fund, and also who the, the chair is MBS. So I, I, that's ludicrous to me. And also I've seen very reputable journalists reporting that the PIF owned the planes that transported the killers of Jamal Khashoggi. So even if there is this separation, there's still some very kind of clear links between the public investment fund and criminal act. So, 
you know, it, it's just so murky. But I, I, I just the thing that leaps out to me, the two things are the fact that fans are willing to. I, I understand the context. It's been a, tor- you know, a really, really turgid fourteen years for this football club and for the fans. But the fact that they're willing to overlook all of this just to get rid of Mike Ashley is is the biggest thing that leaps out. And the second thing is how on earth is football so incompetent at governing itself like this? I don't know how this is allowed to happen. That's They're the two things that jump out to me. Tom Roddy, do you have an answer for that? Yeah, yeah your question, Hugh, is sort of in two different uh, boxes because is it is it good for English football? Well, the idea of Newcastle United, this club that we've been <laughs> spoken about so many times on this podcast about having so much potential to, to tap into and being a pretty much a sleeping giant and being mismanaged for so long. The idea of, of them breaking into, you know, returning to, to what they once were is great. That is good. That's positive. But the process in which it will happen definitely is not for everything that Gregor's just said. You don't think football fans will react negatively to this? Will it take something away from the game that they love a little bit? Or do you think they've already become so used to to owners like this and, and moves like this around world football and FIFA and corruption and all those negative stories, um, Tom Clark, that they you know, this one will just be another one. You know, they'll just get on with what happens on three o'clock on a Saturday and that's, that's you know, as football fans work. I think there's a little bit of that. Yeah, certainly. And we've talked about that before when it comes to Super League and what fans want these days. And I think there is perhaps a little bit of willful ignorance or maybe not even willful ignorance, just just ignorance to the fact, to the some of the things that we're talking about. Some Newcastle fans might not even have heard of Kamal Jasogi. You know, it's that, and that's, should we... Should we blame them for that? I don't know. Should we say that if a new owner is coming in, you should do your own due diligence as a fan? And, you know, that's not their responsibility, really. As Gregor says, that's a failing of the game itself. I think a lot of Newcastle fans, you know, imagine being a teenage Newcastle fan or, you know, a kid who plays on FIFA and always signs Mbappe for Newcastle. Like the idea that you're getting Middle Eastern owners and to you, Middle Eastern owners around the game, PSG, you look at PSG and you look at Manchester City and think, that's going to be us. That's going to be my team. That's going to be the team that my dad gets me the kit for every Christmas. That's a nice thing in a way. That's a good thing because that's you know pure joy and excitement. And I don't know whether we can expect all fans to to know all that. Do we expect all Manchester City fans to have you know fully engaged with what their owners do and have done previously and do outside of football? I don't think so because they would look at it and go, We've, they've made us successful as a club. I do have a little bit of sympathy and I'm not going to suggest that Newcastle fans are completely morally bankrupt if they get excited about this. I don't think that's fair. Yeah, I mean, it depends what you're getting excited about. If you get excited about the signings, fair enough. If you're if you're excited about these people being involved with your football club, I would find that very strange. Yeah, um, I just think I just <laughs> think that I, I, I take that point, but I think it's just the second part of what you said doesn't come into it if you don't, if you're not aware and it's then whether yeah, you course, expect course, yeah. fans to then get engage with that and go, okay, what are these what are these guys about? Whereas actually, fans who've never heard of the Saudi investment fund or any of this kind of stuff, they're only going to have one question: how much money have they got? And then after yeah. that, they're going to gear it all towards right. When are when are we going to get rid of Steve Bruce? When are we going to sign load of players from Europe? And Christ, maybe we're going to win the league in the next five years. That's where they're going to questions are going to go. They're not going to go how much money have they got where do they spend their political influence around the world? That's that's just not going to happen. That's And I think sometimes we're a little bit guilty of expecting too much in football from that point of view. That is where the game's governing, governing bodies have failed. That is their job. It's not the job of fans. Mm. There is one thing I expect from a governing body. That's the Premier League. And I do expect them to come out and publicly explain Firstly, these assurances that they have over the involvement of the uh, Saudi royal family and in particular the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, you know, I, I, I do expect them to be public around why they're so confident he won't be involved and really to explain what, what's changed their mind. It might just be this piracy rule, in which case it's very straightforward. Um, excuse me, this piracy case, in which case it's very straightforward. Things have been resolved between 
seemingly be in sport, aka Manchester City um, and the Saudi and the Qatari royal family and the Saudi royal family. So if that it's that simple, fine, explain it. But I do think there needs to be some transparency over this because I do think there will be a bad taste to the mouth of a, a lot of football fans, generally speaking, and, and who knows what else it opens the door to. But let's talk about the football side of it because. I think people are excited. Newcastle United fans in particular will be excited about what the future holds for their football club. Uh, we're hearing that these owners aren't going to come in and, and, and have the scattergun approach that maybe uh, Manchester City and Chelsea did, in which case buying all these big names as soon as they possibly can and expanding as quickly as possible in terms of their brand. Um, we, we, we're hearing that it's going to be, you know, slowly built success over time. Although Antonio Conte is currently favourite to take over as the new manager from Steve Bruce. So who knows? He usually asks for a lot of money and some big, big players. What do you think, Gregor? I'll start with you on this. What do you think could be next for Newcastle United? Will it be a slow, slow growth? I mean, I think that's pretty hard to predict. I think the first thing you can predict is that Steve Bruce's days are numbered. I, for one, have some sympathy for him because this is his... His boyhood club. He's been pretty much loathed from the from the get go because he was seen as a you know a, a figure that summed up uh, the the Ashley Ashley sort of shrug of the shoulders when it came to how how much he wanted the club to progress. It just it was all about ticking over in the Premier League and keeping the money rolling in and very little else. And I I can't see how he's going to stay. I mean, it's a, an immediate win if. If they swap the manager and uh, with the fans, which which they need, <laughs> so I feel sorry for Bruce. That's the first thing. Um, and after that, I think look, I think for, for again from Newcastle fans' point of view, anything is an upgrade. I think Martin Hardy put in his in his report that seven of of the squad um, f- from the weekend were were part of Newcastle's squad when they last came up from the Championship. They they basically often look at keeping the players on they have on lengthy contract very you know pretty average players in the Premier League uh, context and just keeping them rather than spending money on a new players because it's cheaper to do so you know I think was it, Jake, was it Murphy got, got like a six year contract recently you know a guy who just about a Premier League player and you know there's some really puzzling decisions anyway I think they'll just look at that's, going, that's surely got to be over that's got to be gone Clearly, their horizons will be will be lifted a bit. I'm also interested to see how the current players will, will kind of what they'll feel about this because their days are numbered too, because they are deeply average Premier League players. They're playing for a big club that really, with a Newcastle with a bit more investment and ambition, they shouldn't be playing for them. So um, yeah, we're talking about a majority of the players too. Really, Newcastle's team have got four or five players who you would think. You know, would still you'd still want around, <laughs> and they're starting I mean, eleven. If, they, if, so. the, if they're aiming for top six or top four, if you're aiming for if you're aiming for survive. anything anything with ambition in the top half, they really they, they're just yeah. So I I, I think <laughs> I don't want to say anything too derogatory. I just think <laughs> I just think that there's going to be a change in in policy, put it that way, and whether they're going to be going out and splashing huge sums on individuals. It's a different matter. They're just going to be a very different outlook at the way that they're they're recruiting players now. Which again, Newcastle fans, that's a big reason why they're they'll be so happy about this. I thought there was a really interesting line in Martin Hardy's report that that sort of showed quite how much wealth is in this because you had this Da Vinci painting that was on the Crown Prince's yacht, which was worth more than how much they're paying for Newcastle United. So that, that just gives us a tiny little indication of how much money the new owners have. So I kind of, I, I, I'd be amazed if it wasn't, if there wasn't a significant amount of money spent. We're going to see sponsorship deals shoot up immediately. But then maybe there's an indication because you had the, the last year when this looked like getting over the line. I think Olivier Giroud was one of was one of the players who was mentioned about potentially ending up going there, which kind of gives you an idea of of what market they were looking at. Are we going to see the the sort of Man City Rubinho signing? I'm I'm not so sure, but 
in order to attract a, a, a manager on sort of Antonio Conte's level, then I think they are going to need to to promise significant spending. I think we should probably just quickly highlight how much money this uh, the public investment fund has invested. Five hundred billion. They've got stakes in Boeing, Facebook, Disney, the Bank of America, BP, Uber. So they could go out and, and you know sign Mbappe. They could do all that, but perhaps. And I, I think Newcastle fans should hope. You know, again, let's just put all that to one side and focus on the football. They should hope that they've maybe learned a little bit, having looked at what Manchester City did, because they had some pretty disastrous early years, as you say, Rubinho throwing money at, at individuals rather than, and then they kind of took a step back and they they looked at it more holistically. And there are links between these two ruling families who have interest and links in these two football clubs now. So I, th- I wouldn't be surprised if there are some conversations about how, uh, you know, the mistakes that were made. They've literally won the lottery here, haven't they? Because in, in footballing terms, because you sort of look at, <laughs> I was looking at the statement which was released by the club, uh, I think, little over a month ago after the transfer window closed. And it was kind of a little, an update and um, a communication to fans about the situation and the the whole approach the intention was to say look we are spending what we can the update was saying that the the approach was about being sustainable and spending what we have and that they were beyond delighted to have got joe willock over the line for 20 million pounds that statement will probably become laughable within a year or so looking back on that it already feels it I imagine we're going to have more on Newcastle United in the coming days to discuss and on the next episode of the game podcast as well where maybe some of the big actors big players in all of this will have come out publicly to tell us uh, what has motivated them Premier League Newcastle United and the other football authorities as well Uh, up next we're going to be talking about vaccinations in football though remember if you're enjoying the podcast make sure you're subscribed Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Reports this week suggest that just 30 to 35% of footballers in the Premier League are fully vaccinated. And although several clubs are reportedly 100% double jabbed, there are two top flight clubs with fewer than six players who are fully vaccinated. Gregor, why do you think this is? That's not an easy question to answer. Do you know, the, but there's a big part of me is not that surprised about this. I found that when I kind of got a little bit older in football and obviously younger players were coming through an internet generation, it's already been said, the PFA have said that there are a lot of this is because of conspiracy theories. Let's be honest about it. And that that's the thing that doesn't surprise me. Just having been in football, and as I say, when I got a little bit older and younger players were coming through, those kind of things are rife in changing rooms and there's so much groupthink in changing rooms. So I think a big part of it is that. It's, what is this? And another part of it is, when you're young and you're fit and healthy, you think you're invincible. You think, you know, it won't affect you. It's stupid and it's selfish. 
I'll be honest about that. That's my that's my view of it as well. I don't think you know we're getting down to a point where people think they should have to be vaccinated to play. And you know the reason this is coming to the fore is because so much traveling during international break and they're going to red list countries and and it's going to affect whether they can play when they come back or they have to quarantine. I, I, you know you can't force these guys to do it, whatever their reasons. And I just don't. I think if they can't play, they can't play. And they're going to have to live with that decision. And it will be interesting to see how many of them stick by that decision when they can't play and their clubs are having serious questions, <laughs> serious conversations about that. And it's maybe even hitting them Is in the pocket. Is that right, though? Is that right? That, that, that they, they be put in a position that they can't play? Absolutely, because they shouldn't be given any... If there's rules for travelling, I don't see why footballers should be exempt. They, you know, there, there's ways... There's been instances where Footballers, if they're double vaccinated, are are able to to have uh, the rules kind of loosened a little bit when they return, in terms of the way they quarantine and things like that, whether they can train and stuff like that. No problem because vaccination is the way out of this. I think that's what all experts agree on now. But if you're not vaccinated, then why should you be given any exemption? But do we not think that? And I don't necessarily think think this this myself, but just playing devil's advocate in terms of footballers and the game's position during the last 18 months. You know, we talked a lot only probably a year ago, less than a year ago, about how football was the first thing that kind of came back, you know, while we were all locked up in our houses, staying safe and unsure of what coronavirus was and all quite scared about it. You know, they were out there playing and entertaining us. I know I don't think it's entertainment, Hugh, don't start. But, uh, you know, they they were out there performing. And... I just playing devil's advocate. Do you not think that then makes them go, okay, well, you lot can all have a vaccine, but we've been carrying on as normal far before you came back into the world with your passports and your NHS app and things. You know, we've been dealing with it beforehand, so we'll carry on dealing with it. As I say, that's not necessarily what I think. And I think there's lots of other questions about their role in society as role models for young people in terms of spreading certain information. But do we not think that that could be a factor that they've 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 been existing with coronavirus in a very different way to the rest of us for a long time? Yeah, I'm 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 a bit you know again I've said this before during lockdown I'm a bit kind of hesitant about the role model thing. I've seen again politicians take an opportunity. I think Sajid Javid was saying that you know the role models, young people looking up to them. I, I don't think that's that's not a footballer's position or role. I don't think. You know, I'm slightly, I'm also slightly uncomfortable with the way that they're being quizzed just now to find out who is and who isn't. And there've been some footballers who've, you know, who've spoken fairly openly about it, and they'll be criticised now. So that's putting that to one side. And you you have a fair point. They, you know, a, a lot of them will have already had it because it was it it ripped through a lot of teams during uh, during the early days of this. So that may also change their their view about whether they need to have it or not. But Still, I don't think there should be any ways around the existing rules when you're travelling all around. It also still seems fairly fairly ludicrous that footballers are travelling here, there and everywhere so frequently, basically every other, every month, every other month now, to play football when we're still living with this. Why are you uncomfortable with them being uh, players being asked about it? So publicly. You know, we, 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 have, we have conversations, people have conversations. I've, I've seen journalists tweet about this this morning. You know, everyone has this conversation. Oh, you... You got your jab. You got your. Have you got your second jab? Yeah, yeah. You know, you're relieved. That's a conversation that we'll all have had. But we don't have it in front of TV cameras, in front of thousands or millions of people, and then we don't have our answer picked over by everyone. You know, rightly or rightly or wrongly. I just don't think that's that's fair. I, I've, I've I've said it very very clearly. I think if you're not having it, you're pretty stupid, and you're a little bit selfish. So I can have that and also that belief, and also still think that. You shouldn't be shaming footballers, or you know, either whether you're a politician, or whether you're, you know, the media, trying to find out who is and who isn't vaccinated. I don't know about other people in this um, here, but you know, I I know um, people a similar age to me who and slightly older who haven't had it and is because of groupthink, it is because of influences from outside, and it surprised me and the, the the people that that it is. Um, I think that's kind of what what we're seeing with football and what I can't really get my head around is the fact that footballers are taking those 
taking the opinions and the views and the influence of people who aren't experts. I mean, Jonathan Van Tam could not have been more available, more sort of supportive towards the Premier League, towards the clubs. They had the meetings with the captains to try and um, ease the concerns that people had. And then the idea that a tweet from Matt Letizier um, is going to is go, is I'm going not sure the to, players were listening to that either but yeah that's what you, mean. <laughs> you know what I mean you know yeah, that yeah. sort of that that level of um, influence is is, is going to put a question mark in. this is why I think Tom it's an abject failure of the PFA the FA EFL Premier League the clubs themselves of not making sure that the players were and have been rightly educated to counterbalance the weight of misinformation that's out there. It should be there. No, but Gregor, it should be their responsibility. Come on. They've maybe done it a bit late, but they have done it. And I think you're fighting, you know, you're, no, but I'm saying they failed. I'm not saying, I'm not saying they, I'm not saying they haven't done it. I'm saying they failed. If they haven't been able to convince their players, they failed. As I say, it's a pretty strong tide you're on against. I, Tom's right. Groupthink is a big thing in changing rooms. I've tried to put myself in a position if I was, if you're the one that's in the minority, then you're the one who people will be pointing the finger at and kind of change rooms are a bit kind of unkind sometimes. So, <laughs> uh, you know, you need to, you're actually, it's just as strange as this will sound to listeners, you need to be the one who was kind of strong and willing to just say you don't care about taking a bit of stick and about what everyone else in your changing room thinks and go, and, go ahead and do it anyway. Th- that will be the case in changing rooms up and down the country. And as I say to you, just from my little, when I was, when I was getting into my 30s, and you saw, as I say, younger players coming through, internet generation, conspiracy theories were rife about everything. And it's just, so that, that, is, that is what this is. That is the biggest driver of this. Absolutely. I'm surprised that players haven't been prepared to say they think it's a good idea to take the vaccine. In fact, we've had more players prepared to say that they're, they're not taking it than we have to say that they are, which I find slightly strange. I think the vast majority of players saying, it's a personal decision, but everyone make your own choice type thing, which is fine. Again, everyone's entitled to their opinion, but it, it is surprising whether or not, it doesn't matter how you answer the question, but it has been surprising for me that people aren't prepared to take that, the, the question on. You know, professional, professional footballers aren't prepared. Bear in mind what the players have answered questions about and spoken about over the last two years. Many, many, many topics that affect society from what Marcus Rashford's done, Jordan Henderson, the NHS, you know, George Floyd taking a knee. You know, they've spoken about massive topics and this one couldn't be any bigger and everyone seems to want to shy away from it in, in football, which that is, for me, that is surprising. I don't know what's going on within football clubs and teams that makes people not want to even talk about it. But given they've spoken about some very big topics. I think if they're not talking about it, that tells you what the weight of opinion is. The reason they're talking, the, the reason they're willing to talk about all those other issues you raised is because the weight of opinion in dressing rooms was fully supportive of it, or overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly in the majority. I think the, the likelihood is that you're seeing the inverse in this instance of that. And so, you know, there might be people who are being, who are being, you know, their clubs are putting a little bit of pressure on them or they're, as you say, the PFA and the, and, and the Premier League or the EFL are really trying to, to, trying to lay out the cold hard facts here and dispel any myths and they're changing their mind. It is worth saying, although those Premier League figures look pretty stark, that, in the football league, I think it's forty nine percent are uh, double vaccinated, and the average for that kind of age group is sixty percent in the country. So we're not talking wildly behind the kind of national average for the age of footballers throughout the football league. But the Premier League figures are pretty stark and surprising. And I don't know whether part of that is to do with the fact that they think they're they're kind of cosseted a little bit. You know, they they operate in this bubble. You know, everything is very safe. And they're tested. That's another thing. You think, well, I'm tested all the time. Why do I need to, you know, and we're being very careful. Why do I need to get a vaccine? Stupid. I say again, I'll say again, it's stupid. I heard Johanna Conta talking about it last night and she didn't, she, she didn't confirm either way whether she was or wasn't um, uh, vaccinated. But the suggestion was that she wasn't because she said she left herself in a position that was sort of flexible, essentially, that she couldn't. Um, And... uh, 
and I find, but I find it incredible. And I, and I think that might be the position a lot of footballers feel they're in. I can get it if I need to get it. Um, but I do, I, I do find it incredible to think, I think the most high profile footballer who's actually supported it is Joe Piggott, the Ipswich Town striker. Um, I think he is the most high profile footballer to have supported this. And then also the reason that may be is looking at the most high-profile football manager to have supported it. And that is Gareth Southgate recording that video, recommending the public get support, uh, get the vaccine. And the reaction that came from that, I was, I was on the call um, with him when when he said, when he, when he spoke about the vitriol. The yeah, he received. It was the worst abuse he'd received this year, I think he said this year rather than in his career, this year. And I think he was putting that into the context of the the Euros and the penalty shootout and, and all of that. He, you could tell from his face and his tone the amount he got. He said he felt sorry for his mail, for, for his secretary who'd, who'd re- had to read this. Um, I think that's part of the reason why they're not speaking up about it as well, because all of those subjects that, that, that you just spoke about, the, the, the opinion in the dressing room is overwhelmingly in that direction, but also the opinion from the public in the majority, from the population, is also it, the majority is in the same direction the players are heading. Tom Clark, finally on this, um, going forward, for teams that have very few players vaccinated, if there is an outbreak, this is something that's just been put forward in American sport. This is the why this is the reason that I, I, I table it. Um not necessarily extra punishments, but certainly different treatment for teams who have got very high vaccination rates and very low vaccination rates. So for example, players that test positive can't return as quickly uh, to play, even if they've had negative tests, if they're unvaccinated. Um, and the other thing, of course, is that um, if there is an outbreak at your team, instead of postponing the game, you would instead have to forfeit it if you've got very low vaccination rates. What do you think about that? I think that's quite difficult, isn't it? Because then you're punishing a team and an organisation and a business and a fan base for the decisions of individuals because you can't, you know, our employers aren't saying you have to get a vaccine. You know, the, the f- footballers are employed by these football clubs and they, they don't at the minute have the power to say you have to get a vaccine. And so you'd then be talking about punishing an entire football club for the decisions of maybe say your back four and your goalkeeper who haven't, who haven't had the vaccine and have caused an outbreak by all sitting in the jacuzzi together after, after training. And I I think that heads down a dangerous path when you can also be vaccinated and be still carrying coronavirus and potentially cause an outbreak. So I, I think that's a little bit dangerous and, yeah, I mean, I think probably of the of, of, of all of us, I'm sounding like the most sympathetic towards footballers in this. I I just think if we're getting into punishing them in that grander sense of you know forfeiting matches, I think that's heading down a difficult and potentially slippery slope. I've got to describe to you though, just very quickly. This is going to be the final point on it. What is happening elsewhere? Because I think it's quite surprising. So if you think about the NBA, for example, they've got over 95% of players vaccinated. These are the rules for unvaccinated players, though. They aren't able to eat in the same room with their vaccinated teammates or staff. Their lockers must be as far away as possible from vaccinated players. Uh, They must stay masked and at least six feet away from all other attendees in any team meeting. Unvaccinated players will be required to remain at their residence in their home market. That's when the teams are playing at home. I I find that to be amazing. They also need to stay on team hotel properties when they're on the road, when they're away from, from um, home, they can't go out in the towns that they visit. Now I I just find that to be amazing. Unvaccinated players also not permitted to visit higher risk settings, such as restaurants, bars, clubs, entertainment venues, and large indoor gatherings. Now, obviously the NBA basically own basketball, so they can make these rules and say, look, if you don't want to take part in basketball anymore, then you, you don't have to. You're not forced to take the vaccine. But I find it incredible that in the United States, they can say to you, 
you're not allowed to go out with your mates, basically, if you're unvaccinated, if you want to play in the NBA. Matt Dickinson wrote about that recently. He's saying that I think it goes even further if you're, if you're playing away in certain states because a, a basketball court is an indoor place, you can't play. So there's players who are going to miss out on like, I think he reported it was like $400,000 just for one game. Like they are mega, mega money. That's the other thing. If you can't play, you would sacrifice your earnings for that week basically. Yeah, well, if it's going to start hurting people in the pockets, it'd be interesting to see how, how strong your the position is and how, how long it holds. NFL, vaccinated individuals who test positive and asymptomatic will be isolated. Contact tracing will occur. The positive individual permitted to return to duty after two negative tests at least 24 hours apart. Uh, that's for vaccinated individuals, by the way. They're not subject to quarantine as a result of close contact with an infected person. Now, the main difference in NFL between vaccinated and unvaccinated players is that vaccinated players don't have to worry about being high risk, close contact. They'll have more freedom to participate in activities with their unvaccinated counterparts. Vaccinated players can go out on the road um, more easily. They can spend time with their teammates outside the facility as well, among other perks. So in America, they are drawing a very big distinction. So just in case you think that what we were saying was quite uh, dictatorial a few moments ago, just imagine what it would be like had those rules come in in the United Kingdom. Uh, you're listening to The Game Podcast. Up next, we'll be talking uh, Women's Champions League before we have a little quiz for you to end today's programme. The UEFA Women's Champions League got underway this week with two English sides taking part in quite remarkable games for various reasons in the group stage. Uh, Molly Hudson, women's football specialist from The Times and The Sunday Times, joins me. How are you, Molly? I'm good, thank you. Just about uh, recovered from the, the two games, actually. <laughs> Pretty mental. Absolutely. Let's start with Arsenal. The WSL leaders humbled 4-1 by Barcelona. Um, I've got to ask, I, I, I had high hopes for Arsenal in this game even though we saw with Barcelona winning the Champions League last year, how good they are. Do you think this showed us a bit of a, an underlying weakness that Arsenal might have in this competition this season or just sheer brilliance from Barca? I think it's more just sheer brilliance from Barca. And you you mentioned there that the final of last year obviously beat Chelsea 4-0 and got all of those four goals in the first 36 minutes of that game. And and I think it's fair to say they sort of <laughs> took, their, took their foot off the pedal after that. Um, so I think it is more just how good Barcelona are. I think it's fair to say, and you know, Emma Hayes said it last night, that both Chelsea and Arsenal are a way off Barcelona but I don't necessarily think that's a reflection on them almost it's a reflection of, of the fact that everyone is is a little bit behind Barcelona at the moment um, I actually think Arsenal set up pretty well um, they had a, a pretty clear game plan to try and press it in, in moments and stages um, and they did also improve as the game went on um, but Barcelona are, are just too good I think at the start of that game uh, they were presented with awards from last season, and it was they'd won the the UEFA's best goalkeeper, UEFA's best defender, UEFA's best midfielder, who was also UEFA's Player of the Year, and UEFA's best forward. And I think when you've when you've got that those kind of players in the spine of your team, and then you've got such a good team collectively, I think they're very very hard to beat, and they they've just got so much confidence at the moment. And you know, for Arsenal. I think they almost have to take that game in isolation because they've made such a, a good start to the season. Uh, 11 wins out of 11 wins in all competitions, including a, a couple of friendlies under new manager Jonas Eideval. And I think they just have to accept that that maybe they're quite not in their development stage that Barcelona are at the moment. Chelsea 3, Wolfsburg 3 last night. Um, similar to what we saw, I think, when the two sides met in the Champions League last season. Um, but were you expecting it? I think a lot of people thought maybe it was going to be Wolfsburg's night. To be honest, I was sort of expecting Chelsea to kind of take take a little bit of momentum from last season because they'd always had a bit of a hoodoo against Wolfsburg. Um, they've played 15 times in Europe at home and the only matches they've ever lost are to Wolfsburg. And last season, they beat them 5-1 on aggregate over two legs in the quarterfinals and it felt like... We've, Fortunate we've result, of, though, wasn't it? Yeah, there were a lot. There were a lot of missed opportunities. <laughs> I think it's fair to say. Um, and what we always know from these two is that there's always goals. There's, you know, it's certainly not one where either team sits back and defends. And I think it was just, it was just a shame last night that Chelsea were kind of the art, 
architects of their own downfall. The three goals they conceded were pretty much all defensive errors. And uh, and as Emma Hay said after the game, you shouldn't need to be scoring three goals just to rescue a draw in the end. Um, so I think that's sort of symptomatic of Chelsea sort of, even in the, the WSL season, we saw they lost 3-2 to Arsenal as well. Um, defensively is is clearly a weakness and something that's going to be addressed when when you play a team like Wolfsburg, who it's fair to say are are in transition. They're rebuilding. They were missing a couple of the, a couple of their best attackers because they're out injured. So I think it was in a way Arsenal will probably come out of these two games, even though they lost quite heavily, feeling like they've learned a bit more and are a bit more confident. I think for Chelsea, it was just a bit disappointing to see the same sort of defensive errors and ultimately they'll they'll be happy with the point because at least they've got a point on the board in the new group stage. Just on the English hopes, this was the first group stage match, of course, Arsenal and, and Chelsea. Do you think they can bridge that gap to Barcelona? Do you think we'll see an English winner or is it just... They're so good, the Spanish side. I think Barcelona are so good. They're definitely favourites. Um, I think both Chelsea and Arsenal be pretty optimistic of getting out of their group. Um, the top two um, in each four-team group goes through. I think they'll both be optimistic of that. And then it sort of ultimately plays out to you know how the draw goes. But I think the likes of Lyon, again, will be will be right up there. And, you know, Wolfsburg showed last night that even without a couple of players, they're, they're still more than competitive. So I, I definitely think Barcelona are favourites, but hopefully both of the English teams will, will get quite far into the competition. Molly Hudson, thank you for joining us on the Game Podcast. We'll have more Champions League very soon, I'm sure. Now, I mentioned a little bit earlier on, we would end today's podcast with a bit of a quiz for you guys. It revolves around another fantastic piece from Bill Edgar in The Times. This time, the focus is on red cards. Tom Clark, tell us more. Well, so after we've had sport washing and coronavirus and vaccine (laughs) and lots of very heavy debate, Hugh, I thought... We lighten the mood slightly with a quiz, and it is an absolutely fascinating piece by Bill. As always, it's got all the historical facts about red cards that you could possibly want. I thoroughly recommend it, but I thought I'd test your knowledge of red cards. And we're going to start with something easy, something nice and easy. Well, I think it's easy. It'll be easy when you know the answer. What club has the most dismissals? Most red cards in Premier Premier League history or football history? How far back are we going? Millwall. Yeah, Greg has got it. Millwall. Greg has got it. Millwall. Straight in. Straight in. Oh, you know, it's that old, the old adage is this simple answers always go with it. Yeah, Millwall, 212 in English football history, 212 red cards ahead of Southend with 209 and Brighton with 195. So they're the top three. Filthy this one, Brighton and Hove Albion. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> this one's probably more for Gregor. Uh, given his career and where he played the game. But what player has the most dismissals? Given that I, I read this piece, I wasn't that surprised because I did play against him a lot and it's Effie Soji, isn't it? Yeah, it is Effie Soji, who played, is an absolute football league legend. Anyone, I've mm-hmm. seen him play against Lincoln countless times. He's got, he, got, he got 18 red cards in total, five for Huddersfield, four for Macclesfield, four for Bury. One for Luton, Crew, Yeovil, Southend, and Gillingham. That's ridiculous. Each. I know he played it's for a long time. But did he ever leave any on you, Gregor? No, but I do remember he scored a goal once with a brilliant handball, like to kind of knock out my path, and the referee never saw it, and he ran off cheering the goal like this. And I was absolutely <laughs> devastated. I do remember that. I also loved in this that his his family have recorded a total of twenty-seven dismissals. That's a great, great start in the piece. This is uh, probably. I'm not going to ask it as a question then, because he probably knows. But Gregor, were you at Grimsby in 2017? <laughs> no, that was just after. I saw this one too. Ah, just after clubs with the most with dismissals in the most consecutive games. Grimsby got five red cards in a row. Can't believe wow. it. That is absolute <laughs> wow. shocker. Right. So now we'll come back to some slightly more uh, some more general things now. So. This, this is one for uh, Tom and Hugh, perhaps. Uh, which player uh, in the Premier League uh, had two red cards in two days in August uh, 2000? Two red cards in two days in the Premier League. It's Keane. August 19th. Not Keane. Vieira. You can tell Martin by my invitation, it was Patrick Vieira. Yeah. Oh, yeah. August 19th, 2000, away to Sunderland. Two days later, home to Liverpool. Two red cards. Old Paddy's a mild-mannered manager now, but back in the day, <laughs> back in the day as a player, 
he definitely liked to leave a few on. And then the only, the final one, earliest red cards in the Premier League. So we've got to 82 seconds for a player. I'd be very impressed if you can name him. It was in a very uh, prominent game last season. I was going to say, it's really recent, wasn't it? Yeah. And it didn't, the match seconds. didn't end well for his team after he got sent off after 82 seconds. Oh, it's a uh, Southampton an player. Arsenal player. Southampton, 9-0. Oh, Ryan Bertrand. Yeah. Alexandra Jankovic, 82 oh, seconds. Oh, yeah, that's Manchester the one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Has he ever been seen again? I'm not surprised if not, really. Yeah, Paul Fogel, we should try <laughs> and chuck him debut. down. I think that was like his full start. Or his first yeah, start. feel bad for him. Yeah, feel bad for him, youngster. Poor man. Anyway, there's just a quick quiz for you. I would recommend to all listeners go out there and uh, have a read of Bill Aker's piece and then challenge all your mates with uh, some of the more... more they're, they're actually the easier questions as well. There's a lot more difficult stuff in there. But yeah, no, excellent Gregor, stuff from Bill. Thank you, yeah. Tom. Gregor, how many reds? <laughs> I think two. I think two, which is fairly respectable, think, I, would, I would argue. Only two? Think two. Oh, yeah. Gregor. One was a pretty high lunge on Elliot Bennett, the winger, when he's young days, when he was a whippersnapper winger. Uh, <laughs> he just slipped, he slipped it into sixth gear when I was trying to get into third. And uh, <laughs> I wasn't letting him pass. And then one was against Sunderland. I think it was Chris Brown or Julio Arca maybe played him through. It was one of those where when I was, I'm chasing back from a, it was our own corner and it was a breakaway and I'm chasing back. And I somehow managed to catch Chris Brown, who, you know, I was quicker than some players and uh, <laughs> brought him down on the edge and of the wiped box. him out straight red yeah I think we lost in the in, in the penalty one. area edge of the penalty area it was very close it was dubious in fact I think they probably should have had a penalty but I got away with it it was worth it two straight <laughs> reds not even not even not a double not two yellows never got oh, two I yellows did. I did I got one for no, uh, we did, I've said this before <laughs> I got one for uh <laughs> The second yellow was failure to take a throwing quick enough. Yes. Oh, yes, you have. Yeah. <laughs> we, were, we were trying to bring Athletic. on a substitute at the time. So that was my excuse. And I kept pointing to the, the side, you know, the fourth official was there with his board and everything. I just kept pointing to him and the ref just went, no, mate, booked off. So that was quite embarrassing. Is there video footage of that? Uh, I hope not, because Chris Wilder wasn't happy. <laughs> Someone's <laughs> going to find it. And um, what was your favorite? What was your favorite? What's your? I say favorite, most memorable red card, Tom Clark. I started doing the deep dive on YouTube, and God, there's some real treats out there. I I really enjoyed Wayne Rooney's the clapping uh, Kim Milton Nielsen for Manchester United against Villarreal. That felt like the classic red card that had everything. You know, English poster boy. The, the arch enemy referee that sent off Beckham a three years previously. But my favourite has got to be, it's got to be everyone's favourite, isn't it? Stephen Taylor's handball yeah. for Newcastle <laughs> on the goal line when he then pretends that he's been hit, shot, some might say, and rolls around in a desperate attempt to get away with it. That is never not make you smile. That it's so, so good. I've got it written down here as my favourite. Every time I just cry with laughter. It's, it's, it's not just what he does. It's his face when the red car comes out and he just sheepishly yeah. walks off and it's just like a minute ago you were acting like you got shot. I mean, a sec- split second ago you were acting like you got shot. It's just, <laughs> oh, it's got everything. I love it. I love it. Tom Roddy? Probably the one where a similar look on his face to Gregor when he got sent off for the second yellow. You remember when Kieran, Kieran Gibbs got sent off for doing nothing? Yeah. <laughs> Against Chelsea. Absolutely Alex chamberlain handles the ball on the line stops Eden Hazard scoring and Andre Mariner sends off Kieran Gibbs instead and the look on his face quite understandably did you feel like the Arsenal the whole Arsenal squad decided we need Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain on the pitch more than Kieran Gibbs so off you go that was at the end of the season and it was a very competitive fantasy football league with me and my mates and I just put Kieran Gibbs in my team (laughs) and I genuinely wrote to the Premier League like fantasy football people going can you not reverse this I don't deserve minus points for it it was a it was you know it was an error and they wrote back essentially saying have a day off mate just let it go (laughs) (laughs) you've just had two weeks off as well but you are going to get more time off I'm sure Tom Clark thank you for being with me for the past hour alongside Gregor Robertson and Tom Roddy thank you all and Molly Hudson and Martin Ziegler too and thank you all for listening as well we'll be back 
reviewing the international window, of course, on Monday and all the big stories too. But remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, make sure you're subscribed, rate us, leave us a review and make sure you're subscribed to The Times and The Sunday Times as well. If you sign up today, you will get yourself one month free. Go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get started. We'll see you very soon. Take care. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.